Hey guys, this is Alex from Alabama, and I enjoyed the first episode. I really like the breakdown of how Cujo could be linked to her infidelity. And knowing Stephen King, he likes to write a lot of things in the background of his stories anyway. So that is something that probably has something to do with it. I don't have anything where the guy is the person that has to deal with things from their infidelity, such as like a scary story. But I do have another movie that is related to dogs that has an allegory in which I think is there. So man's best friend, I think, is more so focused on the hubris of man and thinking that they can control nature. And in the end, the only way to get out of it is to realize that you can't control anything and simply accept that. So that's my submission. Great job, guys. You're listening to the Hit City Podcast with Billy Graves and Suki Suburbia. Welcome to the Hit City Podcast on the Slasher Sports Show. I am Billy Graves. Find me on Twitter at Hit City Kid. And of course, with me today, Suki Suburbia. Hey, What's y'all. Happening? It's Suki. Hey. It's Suki, indeed. Tell these people, tell these people where they can find you on Twitter or on any of your socials. Mainly, mainly Twitter um, at 80 Suburbia right now, Suki Suburbia. I follow Billy, so if you find him, you can you can find me. And if you find her, you need to find me too. <laughs> we definitely want to hear from you, the listener. So go to the link tree in the bio to this episode, and there you'll be able to find the link to our podcast messages. Okay, leave us a message, a question, comment, and who knows? You know, maybe we'll be able to play it on the podcast just like we did our main man, Alex from Alabama. And lastly, if you're listening and you enjoy the Hit City podcast. Next time you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts app, give us a rating. We appreciate that. It helps us get a little bit higher up in the site searchability. So, Suki, our guy, Alex from Alabama. First of all, Alex, thank you very much for your thank kind you words. So much. Yeah. Yes. First of all, thank you. We do appreciate you calling in, taking your time to give us your, your input. You know, we enjoy putting this show together probably substantially more than anyone likes listening to it. So having the sentiment reinforced makes it worth the work. So thank you. Thank you. Now, Suki, as far as your point, you would be hard pressed to find a film where a man is the cheater and he's punished via some outside force. But mm-hmm. Alex from Alabama brings up man's best friend, man's best friend. I didn't think I was going to be. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to be thinking about this film this week. Mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. but this is a John Laffia film. Uh, we lost John back in 2020 to an apparent suicide. And uh, as things like this come up, we do like to remind you of helpful resources. So if you or someone, you know, might be at risk of suicide, please call 800 800- Two seven three eight two five five to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Very important. Share that with your friends if they need it. So John Lafayette, this guy wrote Child's Play. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then he wrote and directed Child's Play too. And the film that Alex was uh, br- bringing up to us, Man's Best Friend. Right? I, I didn't even have to revisit this film, Suki. Didn't have to. You know why? Why? Because Man's Best Friend, without looking, was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. Why do I remember that? Because every Rottweiler in the world that was born around that time, or at least after a five-year span, was named Max. <laughs> I bet you know somebody who's got a Rottweiler named Max. I do, actually. I do. 
See, probably multiple people. There was a time where any everybody, even though he was a Tibetan Mastiff, this, this mm-hmm. dog was, everybody wanted a dog like Max from Man's Best Friend. Mm-hmm. All right. And I, I do agree with Alex, though. This, this film was about a scientifically engineered dog. Uh, they gave him, uh, I don't know, the eyes of a hawk, uh, the climbing ability of a of a wild cat. He was doing like he had the speed of a of a cheetah. I don't even know what all they engineered him with. But he was engineered in a in a in a lab. Okay. Okay, and that's what Alex is talking about. You know, man's um and he used the word hubris. I like that. You that know, was good. Yeah, I did like that. Alex, you're you're a bad man for using that word hubris. But he's right. Man's best friend could be an allegory for how man um you know has this as Alex said a hubris, a confidence or arrogance to mm-hmm. control nature and it's not just in the form of wacky science experiments like this one it's the constant building and expanding into nature yeah. okay it's the ha- habitual line stepping <laughs> Charlie wow. Murphy. it's the wow. habitual line stepping and driving bees out of their habitats it's you know controlling weather goes back as far as uh operation popeye during vietnam you know that suki I do not, but please let me know. It does. It probably goes back a little further, but that's okay. just kind of my extent of knowledge to it. You know, it's it's one of the things that, that that damn Alex Jones was right about, unfortunately. And I'm not going to sit here and defend that guy, but you know, he's been right about a lot of things, and that you know, it kind of made him think he's right about everything, right? <laughs> it's it's what happens when a cons- conspiracy theorist nails one. They think mm-hmm. everything's a conspiracy after that, right? But you know, the the man brought to light. The use of everyday pesticides and how they quote unquote turn the frogs gay. Turn the frogs gay. Well, he was close on that. You know, he was right in hypothesis. But the Alex pollution. Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, yeah, Alex from Alabama didn't say this. Uh, right. I want to clear that up. Alex Jones, not Alex from Alabama. We like Alex out from Alabama. Um, we're neither here nor there on Alex Jones. Um, but the pollution wasn't turning the frogs gay, it was changing their gender altogether. And causing a higher rate of intersex frogs in like manicured ponds. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and this is based on an essay from Logan O'Laughlin at Duke University. Like this is exactly the type of thing that you know results in man thinking he can control nature. Yeah. And like Max in Man's Best Friend is not only a great comparison to Cujo, but the very example of what happens when when man tries to control an experiment with nature, and then mm-hmm. it comes back to bite him literally. Mm-hmm. quite literally if you haven't seen man's best friend i think it's a great watch it's actually uh probably right up there with cujo for me they're about a really? decade apart i believe we no 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 it's a little more than a decade what year did uh did cujo come out 83 or was it 81 damn i'm yeah. mad now i think it was 83 but a, so a decade apart because man's best friend came out in in 93 okay. uh, it's a great watch uh stars ali sheedy and uh horror icon lance Henriksen. Mm-hmm. Lance Henriksen, you'll remember him from Pumpkinhead and Alien vs. Predator and a whole shitload of other films because he's done everything from the beginning of time. God, man, I think he's still alive. It's got to be. I don't know. Okay. That's a tough one. I hope he is. I hope he's doing well. I hope he's out doing jumping jacks right now. But Lance Henriksen's a, a horror legend. You, you hear about certain people like Jamie Lee Curtis up there yeah. on you know uh, the, the Mount Rushmore of, of horror. Uh, yeah. The, Along with like the newer generation, you take the old guys like Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, those guys belong up there. But if you take a new generation, say 80s and on forward, Lance mm-hmm. Henriksen definitely belongs on it. He's done anything and everything that he could get his hands on. But yeah, Alex, 
man that 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 was a fantastic a fantastic bring up from you and we do appreciate you calling in giving us a rundown and your thoughts and uh, thank you for um listening to my idea and my spin and appreciating yeah. it for what it's worth i i appreciate you alex yeah 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 enough about alex i don't know alex probably is no good He he sounds like one of them guys that no, you just know he's up no good at all times. Well, it's the alliteration for me, Alex from Alabama. That's I pretty do, dope. I do like some good alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> Alex from Alabama. And I like that accent, too. Had a damn handsome accent, didn't he? You have a handsome accent to me, so I don't I don't understand. Oh, well, what? Everybody drinks on the job and you need to quit, okay? <laughs> uh, you need to quit. All right, Suki, uh, let's get weird. I think we should. So while I was um, just looking over different aspects and conversations to have on the podcast. I thought about movies, locations, and how people um, run across those type of locations. So for instance, The Exorcist, it was filmed in Georgetown. Like I can literally go to the steps and see those steps and run people run up those steps for exercise. And like, now I have this relation to this film that was filmed in 1973. So I wanted to reach out to the community and say, if you've run across a movie being filmed in your area, or you know of a location that everyone uh-huh, has seen a film, you know, uh, coming forth or being filmed in real time. Well, it's funny you say that because yeah. we're going to have a guest later on in the show who was in a film that was that was filmed right here near my hometown. Like right, no way. Right, yeah, a little bitty town. Uh, so yeah, stick around for that guy. Ben Schatzel, he's directed Remission, which is mm-hmm. what we're going to talk about. We definitely want to go have you guys go and see that film. It's a very short film. Okay, it's a it's a horror short. You can find it on YouTube. He's going to tell you more about it. Great guy. But yeah, the film I'm talking about is. Curse of the Were Deer. So you have a connection. I got a little connection. And like it was funny because the guys that made this film, I went to high school with the director. Okay. Mm-hmm. And his uh his mom was my geometry. Miss Gale. And she was a sweet lady. Um okay. but yeah, she I did not do so well in geometry. I don't know if uh if that was one of your strong subjects, but I'm strong in everything, but go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm only strong in a couple of things and geometry wasn't one of them. But you know, hey, th- this that would be a good segment. I do want to hear what our listeners have to say about, uh, especially from the horror genre, but don't you don't have to stick to the horror genre. There's only so many things that can be done in especially small town, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, The Exorcist, uh, filmed in Georgetown. Um, I think they went away in The Exorcist 2, and they went back to Georgetown in Exorcist 3. They even had some uh, some cameo appearances. There was a, a blind Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> with uh, somebody dubbing his voice over him. Patrick Ewing played for georgetown was um i I think like the angel of death or something i can't remember exactly how that dream went i need to go back and look at that dream sequence but it was definitely a memorable and surreal dream because you just never knew what you were going to run into Mm -hmm. so let us know let us know what you got going on and uh we want to hear your story if there's a house that everyone is afraid to walk by because it gives off there's always a house that nobody wants to walk by right what would you do if you found out that either um a, the like the exorcist was filmed at the house you just purchased which happened to a couple um not too long ago they actually accidentally purchased the exorcist home and then uh the wife of the this couple was like oh god this is going to bring down resale but i think she she didn't quite put the right spin on it it would actually help resell, i think 
if you were to list that as the selling point. So like, has anything like that ever, have you ever come across anything like that? You know, did you, you know, purchase you say that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it might take away somebody's incentive or desire to buy the home. Yeah. To a certain demographic, maybe not demographic, maybe just a certain person that might be a little afraid of things like that. But I think it's going to bring in additional different people who would be even more interested in purchasing that home. Has it sold? Or no, you said that they bought it. They didn't sell it. They bought, bought it. I, I believe they're still in there, but I, it was a shock to them to learn that it was, yeah. in fact, the home that the exorcist had been filmed in. So just I, I want to reach out to um, the, our listeners and let us know some real stories, uh, some experiences. I don't like to get personal, but I got personal last week. You know, I told y'all my ghost story and I feel like a better man for it. So I, I think if you share your stories, you're going to feel like better people, too. I think so, too. <clears throat> I think so. Well, Suki, how was your week? My week was good. It went by pretty fast. Um, it's restaurant week here in Virginia. And so one of my neighbors, their anniversary falls right during this week. And so he gets, it's so easy because restaurant week lays out everything for him. So he gets to look what like a hero. Week? So in Virginia and um, in our area, restaurant week is when different restaurants showcase their menu and they'll have like... Um, things highlighted for a special price. Like you'll get five courses for such and such price, but it's like different, you know, things off of their menu, giving you a taste and it runs for a week. We have um, restaurant week and then we have black restaurant week. I think it falls in not too far from there, but he gets to not have to think about the anniversary gift because his anniversary falls on restaurant week. Well, let's talk about black restaurant week. What, what's, what's different there besides uh, the seasoning? So, so, <laughs> Virginia. The difference is the focus is on black owned um, restaurants with chefs and stuff like that. Just highlighting that kind of uh, flair and, and food taste. Uh -huh. and, and when is this? Restaurant week going, is going on right now. I don't it's going know right when. right now as we speak. Yeah, it's right now. Yeah. And I think is black it... restaurant week follows it. So it follows it. So we could get like a, a link or something to, to throw in the bio to this episode. Maybe. Yeah. Look it up to see. Yeah. To see what's even, going on. Even if we can't find it like immediately, we can throw it in there as soon as we find it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. You got any so, favorites to go to? Um, no, I just like trying everything, especially if it's free. I do like free dates. That's my favorite thing. Oh, yeah. She, oh. she likes her food like she likes her men. She don't discriminate. White, black, just... Portuguese. It don't even matter. Yes. In the, in the conversation, I like the conversation and the meeting of new people. So are you talking yes. about men or are you talking about the cuisine? Exactly. Oh, so yeah, my week's been good. Has your week, has your week been good? Yeah. I don't discriminate either. And I like food. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the name of the game. <laughs> that's the name of the game for me. Yeah. I, listen, my, my first two TV crushes were Bernadette Peters and Bernadette Stannis. So <laughs> I don't think it gets uh, too much more diverse there, right? That was good. And yeah, my, that was and really my, and good. And my cuisine, and, and it's ironic. I never, I haven't known a Bernadette since then. You haven't known a Bernie? Another, I, I've never met another Bernadette in my life since the first two loves of my life were on TV. Mm, what a time. I'm glad we found that out today, Billy. Thank yeah, that's you. I, that is ironic though, right? Yeah, it is, actually. I've never met another Bernadette in my life. It was meant to just love those two Bernies. And that's it. And, yeah. So, like, to, to this day, The Jerk is still my favorite comedy. 
and <laughs> and the apple bottom jeans are still my favorite <laughs> from Thelma. <laughs> oh, that's not important to what's going on here today, is it? My week was good, and I was actually on call for my 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 nine to five, if you will. Okay. Okay, I was on call all weekend, so I didn't really get to go out and do anything. Fear of you know getting that phone call and having to be online in like a ridiculous short amount of time. So I just stuck around the house. You know, I, I did get, get caught up on some some flicks though. One of which we talked about, I think, on the last episode, maybe two episodes ago. Um, the film Glorious. Okay. With the, with the uh, yeah, I got to see. Yeah. That. Yeah, the one with the the glory. Uh, window in the wall <laughs> in the restroom so are you giving it so are we going to do okay or like rating yeah one well you know what? I, I could definitely rate it i, I don't want to okay. spoil it though because yeah yeah not, no spoiling but rating yeah. we'll, we'll spoil our main event films but we don't want right. to spoil our upcoming stuff that just just now came out you know but if, if you remember glorious was a film starring ryan quanton and jk simmons Re, uh, rebecca mckendry directed this one i liked it it takes a little bit to wrap your head around, okay? It's not so much uh, face value that you can take. Okay, just imagine, we talked about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and cosmic horror being interchangeable. Okay? Yeah. And, and, and that is the case. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was known for his brand of horror. Now, of course, being the dark gothic type that he was, he gets a, he got a lot of his influence from Edgar Allan Poe mm. and, and the like. However... He does take his own thing and put it into his stories. Okay, he's he's very much a, a unique individual. And when I say cosmic horror, I know I talked about this last time, but it does bear refreshing. Cosmic yeah. horror is you think about things that come from maybe outer space or from other places, other realms, other dimensions. Other dimensions, right? Exactly. Yeah, like our friend Doctor Porsche. She's from another, she's from Taibu. She's from another dimension, and uh, she's here on Earth with us. But when it comes to cosmic horror, these are things that do feel otherworldly, but are not otherworldly. They've been under the surface this whole time. Just imagine you're you're, you're walking through Matrix. Some, mm, um, maybe, maybe, yeah, something like that. Except okay. just different elements, different lore. Okay. But just think you're you're walking through some spooky woods, and all of a sudden the forest comes alive, and the the ground instead of being you know dirt and grass, it just there's like a wallpaper type thing just rolling up and you realize that underneath the ground were, you know, these beings. Like okay. that's the kind of thing that you, you could classify as cosmic horror, something that's always been among us and is not different from the earth, but maybe a realization that you had along the way. Okay. okay. A, a lot of times cosmic horror does have to do with unraveling new realization. Did you get that from this film? I very much got this, got that from this okay. film. Okay. Yeah, All so right. J.K. Simmons uh, is in this film, and he like he shows up as um, well. When you tune in, it's the guy in the other stall. The you know Ryan Quanton <laughs> wakes up and he he goes into the restroom. He's sick as a dog. He's throwing up, yeah. and you hear that voice in the other the other stall. Well, I hope everything's okay over there. I hope everything is. And he's just so calm about it, you know. Well, um, you you definitely will feel uh some Lovecraft influence. Okay. And this one, and it does come highly suggested to watch this film, and it's on Shutter. So, are you Shutter. are you highly suggesting it? 
Oh, I definitely am highly suggesting. But don't be, you know, don't be flipping on your phone. Don't be talking to your girlfriends. Don't be uh, trying to read a book between big scenes because in this type of film, it's the small scenes, the small dialogue where you're going to find, you know, you're going to find the substance in this film. But also watch Night's End. Now, this one's a little more straightforward, okay? Night's End is the one with, um, I think his name is Gino Walker. He's not somebody that I've that I've been real familiar with. But okay. Gino, yeah, Gino Walker is, uh, he plays the lead. However, on IMDb, he is not, he's like eighth or seventh or eighth build. He's the star of this film. He's the breakout of this film and he deserves all the love. Uh, Michael Shannon is um, the top build guy because he's the most famous right now. Theo Germain, probably um, because of the success of, or maybe even the newness of they slash them. Um, those are the top two build actors in this one. But Gino Walker really takes it home. And this is a, basically a haunted house film. He moves into a new apartment. Okay. He's, uh, he's doing a podcast, much like us. <laughs> and um, you know, his, his home is haunted, for all intents and purposes. It is haunted. And as he's talking to his best friend, um, I'm trying to remember his name. I think okay. he has a funny name. Um, Monk. Last name is Monk, but not like Art Monk. Our Commanders fans will know. Um, it's like Felonious Monk. I believe is his name. You might have to Google him for me. Okay. Um, yeah. F- Felonious Monk plays his friend Terry. Um, listen, does everybody know a black guy named Terry? Yes. Okay, good. Because I know I, that um, white people always know a douchebag white guy named Tyler. So I just wonder if, like, there's always a Tyler and there's always a Terry. And you can count on both of them to, to fulfill their role. <laughs> So Terry was the best friend of uh, of Gino Walker's character, okay? And he's talking him through these things. Like, look, man, something behind you on the shelf moved, and I don't know what it was, but yeah, you might want to edit that out your podcast next time because he's doing a video podcast. Okay. And uh, so from there, things just start to kind of unravel. And let me just say, without spoiling anything, because it's not what we're doing here, Night's End had an ending that must be seen. You must. I so you have take- to make it... You have to make it all the way to the end of this movie. Yeah, and and I believe you will because the the suspense does build um at, at a good pace. You know the revelations oh, yeah. happen as they go, yeah. and it, it does not. Uh, it's not a slow burn of a movie. It is okay. your typical haunted house film where just little by little things start to to happen. You start noticing this. You start noticing that. What's different though, Gino Walker is um he's probably somebody I'm going to start to look for a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, he, he plays a guy named Ken, and uh, he actually always FaceTimes with Michael Shannon and his uh, uh, his wife. I think her name was Katie or Kelsey. I see Gino. Kathy. I don't know. Kate? But, Kate? Okay. Neither here nor there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, played by Kate Arrington. Okay. The, the yeah. character's played by Kate Arrington, but Michael Shannon and Kate Arrington are, are married, and I believe Gino Walker's w- was formerly married to 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 Kate in this film. Okay. So it's like they still have this healthy relationship and Michael Shannon's character is totally cool with it. They're like, Hey man, you're, we're, we're glad you're doing what you're doing. You know, we, we want you to be good because like at the end of the day, if you know, your, your co-parent isn't doing well, mm-hmm. part of your children are not doing well. Right. Right. It, right. it is of the utmost importance that you put things aside, not to get too personal on anything here, but it is very important that you don't have to go out of your way to take care of you know, your, your former, uh, your former partner, but making sure that 
your child does not have extensive worries about another parent. If you're, if the other parent is not doing all right, your child is not doing all right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a cold, hard fact, no matter how you feel about it. But healthy relationship in this film, and the buildup is great. The ending is fantastic. Jennifer Reeder directed this one, and I actually had to reach out to her and tell her what a great job she did. And she seemed appreciative. Seemed really? Seemed appreciative. Yeah, I was I was kind of blown away by that. Brett Naveau wrote this one, and he's a hell of a writer as well. So, yeah, the, both of these films, I say over the next week, you watch them. They're both on Shudder. Okay. Listen, if you love horror, Shudder is the place to be. Okay, this is a, a very inexpensive um, service. I think you have a lot of fun watching it. So, yeah, that's what I did this week. Um, so both of those are on Shudder. Both of those oh. are. Okay. Yes, both on Shudder. Uh, easy find. Um. Other than that, I'm just pretty excited about the uh, the revelation that Godzilla and Kong are gonna come back to us. That's a that's a big one for me. I don't know if I've told you this, but the, the kaiju film, the the giant monster, you know, flicks from Japan are probably uh, outside of slasher horror are my favorite films. And you know, I don't I don't listen. I do not mess around with those superhero flicks. I don't care about the MCU. I don't care about DC comics. My superheroes are the kaiju giant monsters. Godzilla being number one with a bullet. Kong, it's like 1A and 1B. You know what I mean? Love them both. Yeah, yeah. So the giant monster flick, where do you stand on those? I know you gotta love them, right? No, I I, I love them, but I also appreciate the fact that you love them because you tell me through Twitter and then you tell me through our text messages and then you tell me on the podcast. So I think I believe you now and I'm excited that I get to I get to hear you say the love each and each and every time. Well, let me tell you how much I love. Them. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, they've announced that in March of 2024, the sequel okay. to Godzilla versus Kong is going to be releasing. Uh, it's Are gonna you going to see it in little... theater? See, that's the thing with certain films like this. I feel like I want to watch at home. Really? You know, I want to watch at home with you know my kids, my snacks, my drinks, my my you recliner, my blanket. The cheering and everybody like does you know more. having the same reaction and that one guy saying oh that wasn't funny and everybody's <laughs> you know yeah, you and, and teenagers kicking the back of my seat and the phone and, and the phones like I'm over there you know watching uh, Larry from down and diagonal texting his girlfriend while his wife's going to pick up popcorn talk That's about I'm gonna I'm gonna smack that ass when I see you girl that talk kind of me. stuff. Yeah. That's an experience. You want to see my kaiju? No, I, I ain't with that. I ain't with that. So okay. I'm going to watch it at home. Okay. Yeah. I might watch it in theaters. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I might watch it in theaters. just went through a very long... Okay. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a scenario that's ahead. happened, though. It's a okay. scenario that happened with the first Godzilla flick. Like, it, it was just a, a terrible experience, and I watched the next one. I watched it in theaters as well, but I believe it was a drive-in theater, the local drive-in theater, which is my first pick, first of all. The drive-in theater is always my first pick. I'll take the theater second. But, yeah, this one's coming out, and I'm really looking forward to it. They're going to dive a little bit deeper into the MonsterVerse, and that's really important because you're going to start finding out some of the origins of some of the the other creatures that, you know, roam the MonsterVerse. And there had been, like, um, I guess you could say issues with the story, where at the beginning of Godzilla king of the monsters or maybe it was at the beginning of godzilla vs kong that they started showing a little graphics like in the opening title or the, the opening credits that oh there was rodan well he was defeated oh there was Ghidorah, he was defeated okay. so 
It's like, well, how many more monsters are there? Because they just listed off about 20 different monsters and they've all been defeated. So where do you go from there? Yeah. And that's what, you know, they were building up to the clash between Godzilla and Kong. Well, this being a prequel, which I believe it will be, is going to open up some doors because now anybody's able to, you know, to show up. I just hope they don't spoil it with a trailer because they, they really spoiled King of the, no, not King of the Monsters, uh, Godzilla versus Kong. They spoiled the big surprises, and I wasn't down with it. Okay. So that's all I had for this week. <laughs> that was quite a journey, Billy. Thank you. I do my best. I really do do my best. Is my best enough? I don't know. It is. You know, I do have a question for you, though. Please. Where do books go when they go to sleep? Oh, mm, tell me. Under their covers. Oh, it was right there. How? Covers, it was right book there. Covers. Book covers, Billy. Book covers, because they all have them and you can't judge anything by them, right? Yes. See, I'm on board with you on this one. That was pretty good. Thank you. Under Thank the you. covers. And I dropped it on you subtly. You weren't you weren't ready. No. You're welcome. No, you, you, you opened up with a in, in a good way. You don't say, hey, you want to hear a joke? And then you tell the joke. You can't do it like that. You just have to ask it like it's a general question. Mm-hmm. And I don't even realize it's a dad joke until, you know, I realize who it's coming from. Welcome. Suki's dad mm. jokes. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Well, let's look at some upcoming horror films. We've got a few things going to be dropping on us in the next day or so. Okay. Starting on Friday, August 26th, my man, Jordan Peele, on video on demand, they will be dropping Nope. Finally, it doesn't, it feels like it's been in theaters for a really long time. I saw it when it was fairly new. Have you seen Nope yet? So I'm behind on two that I plan on completing this week. Ooh. This is the week. So there's that one, and then them, they slash them. I'm doing it, and I will have my opinion on both of those. Well, I can't wait. I, I really do hope you enjoy Nope. It seems like that's okay. one of those uh, polarizing films, and I don't think it's really fairly done. And I'm not one to accuse anybody of anything, but I do feel like there's a reason that certain viewers are so split on Nope. Okay. I'm always... What's the word I'm looking for? It seems shady to me. Anytime somebody says a film is the worst thing they've ever seen <laughs> and when it's the best thing they've ever seen. I don't believe them either time. Either time? Either time. Because there's like such a small percentage. And think of all the films that you've seen in your life, whether you meant to sit down and watch it or you just happen to see it on TV. So it's a lot. There's a lot of content we've consumed from the time our parents put us in front of the TV and told us to hush while they were watching Guiding Light, or this weekend while I was watching um, the, the the cosmic horror film that I love so much. Glorious. But there's no way you're going to look at Nope and say that it was the worst thing you've ever seen unless you have some kind of agenda that you really want people to know about. It's like, well, I don't really feel this way, but... I'm not going to say the word, but when you tell me that a certain Jordan Peele film is the worst thing you've ever seen when it was just a perfectly fine film, even if it wasn't like up to those levels, I call bullshit and I don't like it, Suki. I don't like it at all. Okay. I think people have lost the ability to give real, genuine critiques Mm -hmm. of films and say what they really feel about it. Because if it's just the film, it was fine. It was interesting. It unfolded some really fun and thought-provoking uh, scenarios and narratives. Character development. Did you feel for the characters? Did you understand their plight? Is that rhetorical or are you asking me? 
I'm asking. I haven't seen it. I'm asking. I know. Something. I, well, I mean, I thought you were adding on to, no, to my yeah, questions. I'm asking yes, you. I cared about the characters. Okay. Cared about the characters a lot. Um, the, when I look at the cast, I think there's not a single person in this cast except for one who would who I would go out of my way to see a film because they were in it. There's only one that tells me that the fact that I like this film mm -hmm. a lot, I did like this film a lot, had nothing to do with because of certain yeah, actors being I, in it. I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Now, um, Keith David is in this film. Okay. Okay. I, I love me some Keith David. Kiki Palmer's right there, though, so I don't... Oh, okay. she's right there. She's definitely right there. And she, she does a great job in this film. Um, she's not one that I go out of my way to find. If she is in it, I'm yeah. cool with it. Cool. Because I don't, I don't dislike Kiki Walmer. Well, she doesn't do horror really. So nobody in this film really does horror except for yeah. Steven Yin. Okay. Steven Yoon. However, uh, E before you, you before E, whatever, however it goes. Uh, but Steven Yoon from The Walking Dead, that's where he got his fame, but he hasn't done a lot of other horror. Um, but Keith David, somebody that I think everybody can look at him and be like, you know what? I like Keith David. And he was in They Live. And he, he was in They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper, which is one of my very favorite John Carpenter films. Really? And there, the fight scene between Keith David and Roddy Piper, I don't think it's talked about enough. It is <laughs> one of my all-time favorite because they'll stop, they'll take a breather, and then they'll get right uh -huh. back after it. And then Keith David, you think about him and uh, There's Something About Mary... He's just, uh, he's great. And I see him, I automatically smile. So, Nope is definitely a film that I will suggest to any and everybody, unless okay. you're an idiot. Okay. Okay. Coming up, though, are you, um, you a witchy kind of gal? I am. Very you witchy. Like, you like witches? Okay. Well, maybe you, Suki Suburbia, at 80 Suburbia on Twitter, can the join... Siren of Scream. Okay. <laughs> the Siren of Scream herself, maybe you can join the York Witches Society that will be dropping on August 26th as well. This one stars, uh, no, actually, this is directed by Liza Bolton, and uh, she actually co-wrote this one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Liza Bolton doesn't have a lot of directing credits. Uh, she's done a lot of work on short films, especially earlier in her career. Uh, a few features, but lots of short films. And what really sets her apart is the fact that when her name is on the film, she's going to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. She's going to wear a lot of hats in this film, in the very same film. She's going to be involved in production, writing, directing, and it looks like this one's no exception. All right, there's there's no better way to sell your skills in the form of a film than to have your hands in everything. Now, some mm -hmm. people might call that overmanagement or micromanagement, but she's got her, her hands in everything. All right, so keep your ears open for that name, folks. Liza Bolton, she's really good. Okay. But which, uh, York Witches Society is a modern day set, but it does give us some olden time scenery. Okay. It's a UK horror. Uh, but from what I saw in the trailer, it doesn't really pop to the eyes. It's a very gray film. Oh. So, yeah. So don't go expecting like midsummer type visuals. Um, you know, back, backstory or lore really looks like that. That's going to carry this one. Okay. So, um, interesting though. Yeah, yeah, it looks interesting. Uh, everything I saw, I liked. But yeah, visually, it's not going to pop to you. So you said you're a witchy gal, but how do you feel about vampires, Suki? I love vampires. Do you? Yes. Well, this next film, it's the one that's coming to theaters on Friday, August 26th. Uh, it should be up your alley. 
And allegedly, this film is inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula. Whenever somebody says that, it makes me think, yeah, no shit. All vampire <laughs> films are inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of course, of course. Right? The originator. So this one's called The Invitation. All right. Now, what I'm thinking about doing is making a double feature trip to the theater to see The Invitation and maybe Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. You know, something that I'm not really looking forward to in Bodies, 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 but I'm going to see it because I have my membership to the theater, right? Get my money's right. worth of a month. So The Invitation, like, let me just uh, hop over to the to the old page here. And uh, yeah, after the death of her mother and having no other known relatives, Evie, who's played by Natalie Emanuel, takes a DNA test. I know you wouldn't know anything about that. And discovers a long lost cousin she never knew she had. A long okay. lost cousin she I'm never long. knew she had. That's First of all, that's scary. I don't want extra family members. I'm good with the ones I have. I like it. I like it. It's, it's already a horror to me. I don't want like new people that might come and knock on the door. But she's invited by her newfound family uh, to a, a very lavish wedding in the English countryside. She's at first seduced by this very handsome aristocrat. He's the host of the of the party, okay? But uh, he's soon thrust into a nightmare of survival as she uncovers twisted secrets in her family's history and the unsettling intentions behind their sinful generosity. Sinful generosity is... Man, that's going to be the name of my next album. That's pretty legit. Those are oh, bars yeah. right there. Yeah, the straight bars. Does that mean um, like cool lines? Is that what that means? Bars? You mean you could have a cool 16 on someone's track. You could you could get on there. Okay. Well, that that's good because all I want 16. <laughs> that's all I want. The only thing that retracts me from this one, though, is a little bit is that it's rated PG-13. That, that can what be okay, though. What rating do you want? Well, R is usually what I'm looking for because um, I don't want it to be too too childish. You know, too, well, uh, isn't R meaning violence, basically? Just it doesn't have the violence level? I think there's a level of uh, of, of maybe nudity as well that can do things. Yeah. Um, so but yeah, honestly, though, th there's some really good You're such a guy. There's not enough nude and violence for you right now? Listen, this thing has, um, you know, partial nudity. I don't want partial nudity. I want complete nudity. Not in my horror. In my horror, I want the full nudity. Is that is that what you're saying? That, that's all I'm saying. It's all I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, this one was directed by Jessica M. Thompson. Um, so having seen the trailer, uh, just a allow me to sell this one to you, if you will, Suki. I'm ready. Okay. Well, Evie tells us how it how it used to be just her and her mother. Okay. But her mother's passed. She's on her own. Natalie's on her own. No family. Well, curiosity gets the best of her. You see, and she takes a DNA test, which leads her to this lost cousin that you know, we just talked about, who she goes to meet in public so it's safe. You know, don't be doing any crazy stuff out there, guys. So they get chummy. Evie learns that there's this upcoming wedding where she'll meet more family, if I understand correctly. Well, the okay. first odd thing that you'll find out on your own is the bride and groom. They never seem to be at these events where you'd expect a bride and groom. And in, in fact, one of them said, yeah, they'll be along shortly. They'll be... Uh... Is she the bride? Well, hang on. Okay, sorry. Suki. <sighs> Make me so mad sometimes. Sorry. Well, backing up a bit, you know, Evie's introduced to this other handsome dude, the aristocrat type I was talking about. And he's running game on, okay? Just like we do. Do people still say run game? No, that's no? why you don't have it. But go okay. ahead. So he's running game on her, 
And, you know, he's up to no good. You can see it in his beady little eyes with that mealy mouth grin. You know the type. You're looking at one. But there's this particular scene in the trailer where, again, the bride and groom are nowhere to be found. But Natalie's dancing on the floor with this guy, with the aristocrat guy. And everybody's got their eyes on him, almost as if they're the honored couple. You feel me? I want to see it. Already? Well, a yeah. quick scene shows the ladies, like everybody getting a manicure, when Evie gets her finger cut, okay? They get a little bit too deep into that, that clip, all right? And uh, after that, one of the more shady acting gals, you know, she comes in and starts sucking on her finger. Because you know them uh, vampires, they like to drink blood from what I hear. Is that what they do? Yeah, you know what that's all about. Those, those nasty blood-sucking creatures up to their old ones. And uh, if this film is as suspenseful as the trailer, it should be a good one. Hey. A very good one. Like I said, Jessica M. Thompson directs it and co-writes this one. So she's another one of those directors, much like Liza Bolton, who wears multiple hats at least in her bigger features. And I think this one qualifies. So again, August 26th in theaters. If you like sexy vampires, not the sparkly ones, this one's for you. Shout out to female directors. So that's what, two female directed movies you'll... Yeah. I didn't even notice. I didn't even notice that they were female. I just happened to pick two good movies. Shout out to female directors. I noticed. I noticed. Shout out to female directors. Well, coming from one that is not a female director... To my knowledge, uh, the next film is directed by Justin Lee. Now, there's a lot of dudes out there named Justin Lee in film. Um, pretty common name. But the one you might remember from Seth Rogen and James Franco's comedy, The, the Interview, where he plays uh, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, whichever one is the one that's still alive. Um, this one ain't him. This is a different one. This Justin Lee uh, is known for being uh, more of a writer than a director. He he wrote Final Kill, Badland, Big Legend, uh, Swell, another oceanic-type film. But this one's called Maneater. I know you already like the name. really do. And we're not talking about uh, Nelly Furtado or even uh, Hall & Oates or whoever sings it. Is that Hall & Oates? Yeah. I get them and Duran Duran mixed up sometimes. No way. Yeah, sometimes. I think it is Duran Duran. Not Duran Duran. Oh, here she comes. Damn. That makes that me mad. Oh, where yeah. she come? Keep going. No, you, it's married. not. Married. Okay, fine. It's not. <laughs> fine. Well, what a better place to drown your sorrows than an idyllic island paradise. Well, that was the idea when Jesse's friends convinced her to not let a broken engagement stand in the way of enjoying her prepaid honeymoon. Because you know you don't get those back. Yeah, right? that's true. No, no refunds on those. No. So if you're facing certain death, go on it anyway, because you already paid for it. But their sorrows weren't the only thing going to drown on their trip, especially with a man-eating shark, and probably a woman-eating shark, probably a female director-eating shark, <laughs> swimming just below the surface. But this one's got uh, this one's got Nikki Whelan in it. Uh, if, uh, if you don't remember Nikki Whelan, uh, maybe the boys will. The boys might remember Nikki Whelan from... Hall Pass. She's the one that was about to do the hibbity-dibbity with Owen Wilson at the end, which he turned down like a liar. <laughs> like a liar. Had that been me, they would have been making a movie about a killer dog chasing me to make me atone for my sins. Because I tell you what, that'd have been me. You would have. You would have. You would have finished out. You would have finished it. You would have finished what the movie was about. I would have finished. What, I would have used my Hall Pass. Yes. Okay. You don't just hand it to the teacher. You use your Hall Pass. And then hand it back to the teacher. <laughs> okay, so definitely one that you're recommending as well. 
So it looks really good. And if you like shark features, if you like creature features, this one looks like a fun one. Now, maybe I was spoiled on the Meg. Like, sharks just keep getting bigger and bigger in movies. Okay, in the Meg, it looked like it could have swallowed a helicopter. This one's not big like the Meg, but it is bigger than Jaws, and it does okay. look scary. Check out the trailer for Maneater. I believe this one is also dropping tomorrow on the 26th. I might have said that. February, I mean, February. Lord have mercy. Yeah, what, uh, yeah. February 26th. No, August 26th. August 26th. Okay. Yeah, Maneater Video, actually, that's not going to theaters. That's going to video on demand, as is no, oh. as is York Witches Society, but the invitation is going to theater. Okay. All on August 26th. So, man, this, this episode is dropping right in the nick of time. By the time you hear this, you will be able to watch all four of these films. There you go. Mm, can't wait. But when we come back, we will be joined by the director of the horror short, Remission. He's a good friend I met while covering the upcoming trauma production, Curse of the Weirdeer. Stick around for Ben Schatzel. Hey everyone, Christian Rao here from Slasher Sports. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If so, do us a favor and like, subscribe, and share so our audience can grow and we can keep giving you more of your favorite content moving forward. Find all of our work on SlasherSports.com and on Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Slasher Sports, as well as Instagram at Slasher Sports Media. And of course, be sure to continue to tune in to the Slasher Sports Show anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, always free and available. New episodes published daily during the week. Once again, thank you so much and always for your support. And now back to the show. No, no, go back to the country. I don't know. I have no idea. I've noticed that, especially if you're downtown, like in the like heart of Chicago, yeah. Google Maps just like freaks out. It doesn't know what to do. It will like put you in like, like you'll check it. You walk one block and then you're all of a sudden it like puts you like five blocks over here. You walk one more blog and you're like 10 blocks the other direction. It's like almost useless, honestly. Terrible. Is the worst time for a GPS to go out when you're yes. downtown? Yes, it is. Yeah, downtown in the heart of Chicago, especially if you don't know where Chicago. you're going. Yeah. Yeah. It happens yeah. to me in D.C. too, but I can I can navigate D.C. I can't navigate Chicago. Anyways. The last time I was yeah. in Chicago, cell phones weren't even a thing. Can you believe it's been that long? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That is a the only time I've been to Chicago was when I joined the Navy. And oh, wow. Yeah, so um, we, we did our basic training there in Great Lakes. We had really? our, that was a ba- I didn't even know that they ran basic through there. Yeah, so that's, that's NTC, which is Naval Training Command. or uh, No, that's RTC, which is Recruit Training Command. Across the street is NTC, Naval Training Command. And the nearest town, I think, to us was... I'm going to mess this up because I know there's a Waukesha. Uh, Waukegan? Yeah. I think there's which is north. Yeah, you got it. That's yeah, in Wisconsin. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like right past. Yeah, yeah. So, Wait, is there wa- Waukesha for real? That's the name? Yeah. There's a Wakanda, too. And there's, a, there's, there's another Waukesha. Which yeah. Is... <laughs> there, there's a ton of like places that sound just like that because... I think it's because there was a bunch of ind- indigenous tribes yeah. that, you know, no were all doubt. kind of similar yeah. sounding. No um, doubt. Yeah. Immediately recognize that because, you know, being from Tennessee, we also have, well, Tennessee is, um, you know, an indigenous word in itself. But, uh, yeah, so that, that was the last time I was there. Um, I, I, I left there in maybe March of 2001, May of 2001, can't remember which. But it was the worst time to go, too, because the day that I left was December 29th from home. Okay. Took my first plane ride up to, I think it was O'Hare, and a bus from O'Hare to um, Great Lakes. 
and it was the worst because it was so cold. I didn't think yeah. winter. I, I I didn't really believe winters got that bad because being from here, like one light snow is about all we're gonna get. Sometimes mm-hmm. we get a pretty good snow for us, and it makes the you know makes travel just difficult for a couple of days. But I never saw like up to my head snow and. Oh, wow. It must have been. Okay, it was real bad then. It was a culture shock. Yeah, it was definitely a culture shock. And, you know, boot camp in itself, you know, guys yelling at your, you know, two inches from your nose and not knowing what's going to happen. That's a culture shock in itself, let alone, you know, this winter where we would have to march in day in, day out. It was a whole whole thing for me. I just didn't expect it. But, yeah, that's... Made you mentally tough. Did it? I don't know. I mean, that's what they, that's the selling point at least that they give people. <laughs> this was Navy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe one step above You're Air Force. Somewhere. I mean, it's not Air Force, so, you know, it's still kind of yeah. hard. The chair force. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I come from a military family, so I've heard all the jokes. And I uh, support the military right now, my current job, guys. So I'm going to need you to not be talking about my people in front of me. Okay. <laughs> what, what do you do for the, what do you do for the government? So I um, run the Reserve Health Readiness Program, which gives support to all reserve and guard units and active units that are not near uh, military bases. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. My my dad was an instructor and, like, taught a bunch of reservists and and National Guard and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm familiar. No, it's good stuff. And the government, like, you know, say what you want about the government, but government jobs are are pretty sweet to have when it comes to the benefits. Well, I'm a contractor. Yeah, I'm a contractor, so mine are mine are good benefits until yeah. someone says no. So. Yeah, isn't that that's always how it seems to work? <laughs> well, guys, I don't want to be telling tales out of school here, but we are here with the director of our movie of the week, Remission. You can find it on YouTube and probably other places, but we want to have our guest tell you about that. So, welcome, director, screenwriter of Remission, Mr. Ben Chassel. Ben, welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're very glad that you decided to join us. Um, you know, first, let's get it out of the way. Remission is a sci-fi, and maybe depending on who you ask, son, sci-non-fi horror, uh, more specifically environmental horror. And it's a story of a team of scientists in Antarctica who discover something very dangerous on the brink of realization. So, Ben, tell me about your motivation writing the screenplay. Sure, yeah. So... You know, it kind of probably mirrors a lot of other independent directors and and people that want to write, direct, and create their own movie from scratch. And what I mean by that is it started with this kernel of an idea, which was um, what if there is a very deadly, potentially apocalyptic virus Mm -hmm. living inside these glaciers in Antarctica, and now that these glaciers are melting this virus comes to life. What would that look like? Right. Um, so, so that was kind of the beginning of it. Ran through a number of different treatments for where to go with it. Played with a handful of different monster designs. Um, played with a handful of different character ideas. I didn't know if I wanted this to be a feature or a short film or, you know, maybe a web series or, or what. Uh, and ultimately, you know, landed with what became Remission. Awesome. So th- it was always on the table that it could have been a feature length film. It, 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 was at the time um and it actually still is on the table to a degree so this it's a proof of concept is really what i went in with i I said i want to see if this even makes sense like will this land with people um will i even like it once i see the finished product if so maybe this will 
invigorate me to, to move forward with a feature. Uh, at this time, I don't know if I have a concept for a feature fully fleshed out yet. I've got sort of like some smatterings of different ideas that I think I could pull together for a feature. But uh, yeah, for the time being, it, it's a short film. And, and I think it does that pretty well. I, I really like it in a shorter context. Some things that you've talked about, though, um, just shooting from the hip here, some things that you've talked about lead me to believe that there are ideas, not just things that that are out there, but things that you basically cut on the editing floor. I mean, just think about, you know, the, um, well, I don't want to give away too many things. I mean, we definitely want you to view uh, remission, but there's also a director's cut where you talk about a lot of things that were, you know, edited from the final film. So, I mean, just thinking about Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation going on. Um, I think that itself could be, I mean, it, just depending on how it's done, it could be a very big part of your film, especially mm-hmm. if it happens multiple times, right? Right. And I think that's probably the biggest thing when it comes to a short film versus a feature film, in my opinion, specifically in the horror genre, is you can make a short film pretty scary and it can be concept and it can you know have a unique idea and it can convey a thought and all of those things but i think what you miss the most is really strong character development over the course of a longer runtime and you know i think that the characters in this shine through with what you know time screen time they were given but if i had the luxury to build this out from 16 minutes to more like you know 90 minutes then that just gives me so much more room to play with the depth of these characters and, and what are they grappling with outside of the current threat. Like and the exactly. Like outside of the, the science and this environmental catastrophe that's taking place, what else is going in? Like how could these characters bring in their own personal uh, development and their own personal situation and kind of use that to uh, feed into the overall crisis? So I think you're right. There, There is stuff to play with for a feature and it would be fun to expand the cast out and bring in different characters and just really have fun with it. But at the same time, it is such a high concept thing that in my mind, I'm like, okay, I could maybe pull off convincing people that this looked like Antarctica for 14 to 15 minutes. Having that same level of, of production over 90 minutes might be very difficult. So I think it requires another level of creativity that I just haven't quite unlocked yet. Or you could just go to Antarctica you know, be a man about it, right? That's a good point, actually. I hadn't considered that. Um, I'm sure I could find a little rowboat on eBay for maybe 500 bucks and just get down there somehow. Don't get smart, Ben. Don't get smart. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Did you have a good time working with the actors that were in, in the short film with you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely did. So I think with the... No, I take that back. Yes. With the exception of one actor, I've worked with all of these actors previously. So these were people that I essentially was calling up and saying, hey, there's this part. I want you to play it. This is a passion project of mine. Uh, What would it take for you to be in this film? Ah, So I was going to ask that if these were guys that you cast specifically or were there, um, you know, was there a casting call going on or who, who had you not worked with? So the only actor I had not specifically worked with is the character Elijah. It's played by Jelani, Jelani Talib. Mm -hmm. And he and I knew each other for a while. We just had not actually worked on a project together. Um, We shot this in Kansas City. So the Kansas City film scene is 
somewhat tight knit. Everybody kind of knows everybody as far as who's creating films and, and who the actors are and who the you know writers are and everything. There's a lot of networking that happens. So I was very familiar with him. He was my top pick for that character. I had just not worked with him in, until that project. Well, you'd brought up the fact that Dan Daly seems to find his way into everything that means anything in Kansas City. And, you know, Suki and I had talked to uh, Patrick Ray last week, who, uh, who did They Wait in the Dark. And Dan Daly has a role in that film as uh, the, the the hotel keep. And mm-hmm. as soon as I saw him, I said, oh, my God, that's that that's our six degrees of separation to, to Ben right there. Right. Yeah. You know, Dan is an actor. Uh, he's one of those actors that just like embodies the definition of an actor. I think that's the best way to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him on a, another horror short film that we'd done probably about a year and a half prior to shooting remission. And he was a monster in that, in that film, but he's never revealed. He's in a morph suit the whole time. I think there's only a couple of shots of him and, and they're from a distance. So there's no way you would know it's him. But he, he killed it. Like, just working with him on set, he's the most professional person you could ask to work with. And, you know, he's there for the the craft and the art and making the whole project better. Um, and I remember on that first project, I told him, I, I said, you remind me a lot of Doug Jones. Like, if I was to relate you to an actor in Hollywood, I would I would think Doug Jones. And part of that's because he was fully covered in this monster get up and I'm thinking, okay, that's, you know, Abe Sapien or the monster from shape of water or something like that. But he's also got a similar look and he just disappears into any role that he's in. And to me, that's the appealing thing of an actor. Like that's the best quality you could look for in an actor. There's so few actors that can pull that off um, and, and really like disappear into a role, whether it be one line or whether it be the lead of a film. Dan has that quality. It's wild that you say that. Suki, do you remember last week when we were talking to Patrick? He said uh-huh. something similar about he did, Dan. Yeah. It's like, just no matter how small a role, he's going to do something to make it a Dan Daly role. Give it a little extra twang. Just that little it, extra thing. It, it is. And it's so important as a creative, I think, especially for me, because this was my first time out directing. I'd written some stuff here and there, but this was like my script. This was the first script that I would say, this was my script that that I wanted. And to have somebody come in with that level of creative energy and say, hey, look, I understand everything that you're trying to do here, but also I've got some other ideas. It's so invigorating as a creative because you become so passionate about this thing you're creating. Mm -hmm. And then when somebody comes in and matches that passion and and has new ideas and you start building off of that, you can create something really cool and have a hell of a time doing it. So Mm -hmm. Meredith Lindsay, she, she made appearances in Mad Men, LA Macabre. Uh, She plays Dr. Margaret Rothschild, the wife, a fellow doctor, fellow scientist of Dan Daly in this, in this film. Um, what about Meredith said, okay, well, first of all, you've already said that Jelani was the only one you hadn't worked with and everybody else was specifically brought on because it's a passion project. Mm-hmm. Why Meredith? Meredith has a level of experience that I just couldn't match with any of the other actors. Mm-hmm. And she she's an actor who elevates the talent around her, which, you know, I, I would say that's 
neck and neck with the ability to disappear into a role like that's what you want from co-leads you want somebody who's going to raise the level of talent that you're working with and you want people that are going to be dedicated and and really like pulling parts of themselves into the role so uh meredith was the first one i cast as Mm -hmm. i was devising the concept for this i'm thinking this is maggie's story at the end of the day she maybe doesn't have the most screen time uh she maybe doesn't feel like the lead of the story but this story, the, the film itself, you know, it started as this kernel of, okay, what would a virus that, that's lying dormant in these icebergs, what would that look like if it were to happen? But when it comes to the actual film and how I saw this playing out, it was the closing image. That was the, the most clear vision I had was the closing image of the film. And I could not picture that image without Meredith. It, it had to be her. Uh, and, you know, if she said no, then I was probably going to rewrite the whole film to be honest. So I was talking to her very early on and I'm saying, you know, I know it's a unique role. You know, this might be something different than anything you've done before. And this is somebody who has credits and has been on sets that people dream about being on, you know, Mm -hmm. she's been on Mad Men. She was on two seasons. Like that's one of the greatest shows of the current century. She has that experience and she's able to pull that experience to set. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, she's willing to, like, do some very weird, off-the-wall, crazy ideas that, you know, at at the time, this 24-year-old kid who really had never done anything uh, is just throwing at her. And she's like, great, let's do it. Let's take it even further. So, it it, again, it it just, it had to be Meredith. Yeah. I dig that decision. And I dig the logic. So, let's look a little bit at the story and maybe your motivation for creating this story. I mean, this is obviously rooted in the perils of some real world issues, is it not? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, I'm really inspired by, I would like to say I'm inspired by socially focused films, just as you've told me in the past. Um, a lot of times that can get some pushback because we know that there is a political side to everything. And no matter how right or wrong it is, the other side's always going to push back on it. You're seeing that with films like Halloween kills and you're seeing it in films. Well, I just think, I mean, one of the oldest films that, you know, that I'm a fan of is, uh, you know, the, the Godzilla series. The very first one um, is actually my favorite genre of, you know, one of my favorite genres of film and Godzilla was originally meant as a metaphor for the dangers of using nuclear energy. You know, the, the use of nuclear energy is now transformed into this giant monster that we can no longer control. So what is it about remission that should plant that thought into the heads of viewers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is something that I've really grappled a lot with since shooting remission. So I don't think I've touched on it yet, but we shot the film summer 2019. So that was about nine months before <laughs> everything started to close down in the U.S. because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've talked with a, a handful of people about the film. And the most co- one of the, certainly one of the most common questions I get is how did COVID inspire this film? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my answer is it was written and, and shot and produced nine months before so it really didn't inform any of the decisions but the reality is that a lot of the uh societal changes that we were seeing and 
I guess you could extend that to a lot of the political changes that we were seeing. Those existed well before COVID and COVID kind of like shined a light on it. So, you know, at this epicenter of that, as it relates to the film, would be environmentalism. Um, and, you know, when it comes to sort of the audience reaction to that, I decided fairly early on that I was just going to not care because at the end of the day, this is this is my film, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's it, it was a risk that I wanted to take. You know, at this particular junction in my career, I'm thinking, why would I play it safe? This is the movie I want to make. Mm -hmm. I think that there are people out there who are interested in this. I think it fits the genre. To me, when I think of all of the best horror movies that, that I connect with, all of them have this nucleus of social commentary or political commentary. And Godzilla is really a perfect example to that because you look at the original Japanese Godzilla films and pretty much all of it was based around nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. And then America said, wow, or Hollywood rather, Hollywood said, wow, these movies are doing a killing in Japan. Let's try to make a big lizard movie. And some of them were okay and most of them weren't. And <laughs> then, you know, Japan has come back to the Godzilla films. And to me, Shin Godzilla is, is my favorite Godzilla film. And, you know, that very well could have been written and shot and like com completely uh, theorized well before COVID. But watching that film in context, I'm thinking, wow, this is very intelligent commentary on how governments react to these large scale catastrophes. And it almost doesn't matter when it was produced. Mm -hmm. This is just a universal truth that we're dealing with as human beings in, in a modern society. So if it was produced a year before COVID or during COVID or after COVID, it really doesn't matter because the message carries the same weight. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm thinking, well, that's what I want to do. That, that's what I want to achieve. I don't necessarily want to achieve having 10 million people watch the film. But if I can have 10 people watch this, watch the film and seven of them walk away and think, hey, I feel validated about my fears now. Like, I feel like I'm not the only one who's scared of the inaction of this climate catastrophe that we're in. And I feel like I'm being represented. My fears are being represented on screen. Mm -hmm. Then that's the point that that's the impact I want to have. Yeah. So this whole thing kicks off uh, once the, uh, you know, the icebergs are melting. So, I mean, if, if that's not the, you know, the, the click that makes it happen, then I don't know what is. This is a, you know, I think about that opening, the opening few seconds of the film. And I, I, I was going to ask you, because I'm, I'm kind of struggling to, to ask things that don't give away anything in the film. Because that's one thing I said that, you know, usually if we have a guest on, we're going to look at their film. We're not going to give anything away. Mm -hmm. We want to get people to go and watch. If we don't have a guest, we're going to look at a, a movie in history and we're going to spoil the hell out of it. We don't care. Because if you haven't watched Cujo in 50 years, and that's on you, not us. But... Right, and it'll get remade in five more years, so you can watch it then. That's a fact. That's a fact. But this opening scene, um, it's it's a top-down view of um, a family of penguins, and they're all... I couldn't tell if, like, hey, is this just a nature shot, or are those penguins running away from something? That was a question mm -hmm. I had, and I'm going to let you answer it, and, you know, that's, uh, that's that was... where I'm going to leave it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. So keep no, no, that? go ahead. I'm ready for the answer. I'm ready. Okay. So... You know what? That that was exactly the intent. Uh, <laughs> Running it, away? No, Questioning. it was. Questioning. It, it's both. It's. I wanted it to sit exactly between those two ideas. 
because I want the whole film to sit exactly between those ideas of, wait, is he doing this on purpose or does he just like do things and then there's like a, you know, an element of maybe some sort of social commentary if you read really far into it. That's what I want throughout the whole film is yeah. is for you to either kick back and say, oh, that, that that's that's kind of cool. I, I like what's happening right now. Or for you to sit there and lean in and pick it apart and say, oh, maybe this is what he's trying to say. Or maybe this is how it's relating to real life. Or, or you know, maybe this is what the characters are representing. And I didn't want to lean too far one way or the other. Uh, so that was the exact purpose of the opening shot is to say, hey, this is, uh, you know, maybe a little bit scary or, or like there's an element of a mystery here. Mm-hmm. Of, are these penguins running away? If so, what are they running away from? Are we going to learn? Is it nothing? Um, or, hey, this is a nice shot of Antarctica, and that's a, you know, fun-loving looking group of penguins. So that's that's the point of it, is uh, to try to establish that tone. And there's points throughout the film where I kind of dip more to one side or the other. But, you know, I see it almost as like a tightrope act. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know whether or not that's successfully achieved, but that was certainly the intent. Did you well, have it completely a completely worked me. Yeah, it, it worked for me as well. Did you have a tight schedule with your vision? Or were you like, hey, let's just go as long as it takes. Doesn't matter. Are you talking about on set? On set, like, was it a tight schedule? Did you have a tight filming schedule and you had to get the, the take that day? Or did you have some leeway with getting the take you wanted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we were on a very tight schedule. So <laughs> okay. uh, it was, uh, I mean, it was all of the high-flying theatrics of being on an independent film set running on a relatively tight budget. But I would say to anybody out there who's um, either thinking about creating their first film or maybe has done one or two and they're kind of looking for maybe just a a little bit of other uh, input, when it comes to the practical side of filmmaking, your limitation is often going to be your locations. Mm -hmm. So... For this particular film, the locations were a really big deal. Like, we needed locations that kind of matched what we were trying to pull off, which is a scientific research base in Antarctica. And those were difficult locations to find. Uh, When we found them, those locations were like, okay, you got 10 hours, and it's going to be a day. So, you know, as you could probably tell, our main location was used pretty often throughout the film. Um, So the primary location we used was everything except for that lab in the first Mm -hmm. scene everything else is in the same location and we were there for 10 hours and that doesn't seem like a short amount of time you think okay that's you know you could do a lot in 10 hours but when you're coordinating the the types of effects that we were doing and you're coordinating costume changes you're coordinating action shots albeit relatively low stakes action shots but there's still action shots. There, there's still some level of stunt work that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to do all of that while keeping everybody safe, while capturing the images that you want to capture and getting out of there on time is a Herculean task. And honestly, it's really only possible if you put in the work mm-hmm. on the front end to schedule out your day as efficiently as possible and know hey, no matter what we do, we're probably going to run behind schedule. So we should probably schedule this out for an eight and a half hour day Mm because it's going to end up being a 10 hour day once we're actually on set. 
See, that doesn't feel like a big enough window for me because I, I feel like my level of organization <laughs> needs a larger window. So I'm I'm probably going to schedule a, a seven hour day and hope that I can you know make up that window of ten because yeah, okay. it was an outstanding job first of all. And, and I it's remember amazing. you said yeah. So <laughs> you know it's something <laughs> I wanted to jump back to on the um on the allegorical side, Suki had really well. First of all, let me back up. I am guilty of many things and <laughs> one of them is not looking too little into anything okay sometimes i will look too far into things and try to make sense where it was just a scene uh, almost like the, the opening scene with the penguins even though you purposely did that and that's you know it's good on you not not good on me at all um but we watched the film cujo two weeks ago and suki gave me a very interesting thought and it was something that of the decades of seeing this film, <laughs> never once thought about. Suki, fill them in. Just tell them. I'm too mad. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's really easy. So the dog See, don't don't say that, Suki. I just told really? you. I didn't catch it. And then you start off, well, that was really easy. Like, this is so easy to get dog, it. The dog, you know, she was, okay, let's just go back. So this woman is cheating. She has a pinto. Her husband has a jaguar, <laughs> a running jaguar he sends her in the pinto to go get fixed it's broken down this is their marriage she now has to fight this dog to win her marriage back she's fighting her infidelity the whole time why didn't he just give her the jag you know why because she has to fight her way back in the house to get in the good graces of being the family again you'll see it you'll see it when you watch oh it. wow <laughs> you know okay that, yeah no that's <laughs> I, I mean, he has a working jag. Give me the jag. Why am I not in the jag? Because you're the cheater. That's why you don't I'm, get the jag. I don't get the jag. Now I'm in the penta with my baby trying to win my life back. You're a loud ass kid who won't stop crying over anything. Dogs. But yeah, so the dog represents the infidelity. She has to fight that just to get her marriage back. So, Well, I mean, I think that is... What am I trying to say here? I think that is what elevates the horror. And I, and I think that's why you find elements like that in so many horror films is nobody would probably come to you and say that Cujo is a film about marriage infidelity, right? Even Perhaps. though really it is. And like the dog is just a physical representation of that, if anything. Um, but that, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to walk away from that film with. And yet if you were to go out on the street and tell the average person that the film Cujo is about marriage infidelity, people would think that you're talking about a completely different movie. <laughs> they made a new but, one? But that's maybe what makes it iconic. Like maybe there's something yeah. to that that like resonates with us on a human level. Yeah. Uh, I'm not particularly scared of dogs, but I'm terrified of Cujo. Mm -hmm. And it, it, maybe it's because there's all of those other dynamics at play. And, you know, it's not, it's no longer just a demonic dog that's attacking people. It's fighting for your life. The car is the broken down relationship. It is not running. So, anyways. But at the end so, of the movie, the car is no longer usable. Because they're now into a new phase of their relationship. In the Jaguar. Which I should have been driving in the first place, let me tell you. But whatever. I'm in the Pinto. <laughs> well, I'm in the Pinto. I'm with you on that. It, it, yeah, I definitely choose the Jaguar between the two. Well, before uh, you, you came on to open the show today, we had a caller who uh, kind of gave us his thoughts on a film that I guess I should preface with the fact that Suki said that women usually get this from 
the you know the, the the tropes in films, but men never do. We can't. We couldn't think of a film that was about a man who had been uh, disloyal and had to face some sort of beast. And we're talking about a horror film, not just any film. Yeah. Um, and I did think of one, Suki, but I'll, I'll bring that up um, later. Actually, I shouldn't even say that because it gives away the fact that we're recording this segment before we record the other one. And uh, <laughs> it's about a fi- it's a film called Shudder. I'll talk about it later. But either way, this is a film that is about, you know, Cujo's about the, the woman cheating. She has to atone for her sins. Well, the film Man's Best Friend, as Alex from Alabama said, Thanks, Alex. is about... Yeah, this is about men who are basically trying to control nature, and they can't. Thus, man's best friend escapes man's hands and raises all kinds of hell. So that that's just you know some thoughts I had on it, and you know the, the allegorical feel of these films, though, uh, much like Remission, really has to be thought about. And I brought up earlier Halloween Kills. Now, I wanted to get your opinion on this. One of the biggest gripes from anybody who complains about Halloween kills is the use of evil dies tonight. And they hate the hospital scene where they bully the, the, the other escaped convict into jumping out of a window and ending his own life. That is a really big and hot point of contention from Halloween kills. Now my thoughts, and I'll defend this to my dying breath is that people don't really like for the mirror to be turned around on them. People hate to think that, hey, maybe I've been the villain this whole time, okay? Now, the mirror that they're turning back onto us in Halloween Kills is evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight. This is a, a chant that is just ingrained into our minds after so many times of repeating it. And it's a mob thing. you got this mob in the hospital, and they won't listen to any amount of reasoning. So what does this remind you of? To me, it reminds me of the societal tribes... That we have pitted against each other, whether it's the BLMs versus the MAGAs, uh, it's Blue Lives versus BLM, it's just any number of ones that you can think of. Everybody's got their battle cry, everybody has their group think, and nobody ever listens to logic from the more level-headed people on either side. So when I hear Evil Dies Tonight, I think about those you know, th- those groups, especially during the, the, the recent riots, or, you know, they're kind of recent now. But this is a, something that, again, turns the mirror back on us and it says, hey, you know what? The reason that you hate this is because this is you. This is exactly what is going on in real life. And then they'll chime in and say, well, I don't watch horror to get social commentary. But then they'll turn mm-hmm. around and watch something like The People Under the Stairs and call it a, a classic. Or they'll say Rosemary's Baby is like, oh, man, that was crazy film. Or, you know, to talk about Candyman and talk about how iconic it is. Every one of those films just fraught with social commentary. Did it go over their heads or did they just turn their blind eye to it? My question to you, Ben, <laughs> pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Did you like Halloween Kills? And why did you? Yeah, you know, I... <sighs> it feels straightforward, but I would say that's probably one of the most divisive uh horror film does that's come out in recent I've not, memory i've not seen a more device one divisive one in a decade exactly so you know when i saw it i i said okay that was pretty good to, to be honest i kind of preferred the uh the first installment in the trilogy no doubt. more no because it, it was it was brand new we needed it. it it was brand new it was like wow you actually brought back glory strode nobody thought that she was gonna do it again you know and it, brought back michael in a way that was actually engaging i was along for the ride 
Um, a second installment of a trilogy, I would say, is typically the hardest. Yeah. But you and know, technically what... being the third of four is probably even more difficult. Oh, that's true. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But um, it's, a, it's a trilogy. You, you didn't you didn't misspeak. It's a trilogy because you know where David Gordon Green started and where he's going to end. That's three films. Just using a little bit of lore from an older film. But you're mm-hmm. right. It's it's the middle film of a trilogy or the third of four, and both are very difficult to get over. It is, and I think that this is an interesting time to talk about it because ultimately people are going to judge Halloween Kills based on whether or not they like Halloween ends. That That's how I feel typically the second to last installment of a franchise goes, where if everything gets paid off at the end, people will be like, eh, it wasn't that bad. But we're not at that point yet. So this is probably one of the last times to truly evaluate the film in its own con- in its own context without you know considering the uh the ending of, of the trilogy or of mm-hmm. the series so with that said when i saw the film i said okay this is you know probably right squarely in the middle of the halloween franchise i would say you know i could kind of take it or leave it I but then as that. time went on and i saw how divisive it was i'm thinking in my head this is resonating with people. And I think it goes beyond the brand of uh, beyond the Halloween brand, mm-hmm. because there's been plenty of Halloween films that people did not like, but, and, and I mean, they were divisive to a degree. Um, and some of it might just be my own ignorance on the matter, but seeing this play out in real time, it, it like brought a different level of appreciation to the film that I probably didn't have when I, you know, turned off my TV five seconds after the credits started, you know? And so for its place in the series, I think that it's going to be in the same category as The Last Jedi is to Star Wars. It's going to hold that position as like, this is the divisive film where you have to have an opinion on it. The other films in the Halloween series, by and large, you don't really have to have an opinion. Uh, Some of them you do, but this is one where you have to. And... I mean, that that will give it like a special place in my heart, because, again, just having that ability to to take a a series that's been around for decades now, put out something new and say, this is so representative of hot button issues right now. Um, Does it tackle them well or poorly? Is is Halloween the franchise to tackle these issues? Uh, You know, was it properly set up in the first one? None of that really matters. Because what matters is it's resonating with people on a certain level. And in my opinion, that is all the justification mm-hmm. that the filmmakers need to put it in there in the first place. Like they obviously achieved what they were trying to do by instigating this level of conversation that's come after it. So it's an effective film. Like the, the conversation justifies its existence, in my opinion. Good call. Good call. And, and and I do wonder if it was done on purpose. Like you said, the uh, you know the, the opening scene of remission with the penguins where I'm saying, hey, was is this are they running from something or is this just a beautiful nature shot? I didn't know at the time that you'd done that on purpose. You'd kind of ridden that fence. I don't know if they were riding the fence on, you know, evil dies tonight, but I know the effect that it has. And I think it's largely I guess the, the, the favorite one to criticize is Halloween Resurrection. And I hate that so much because I love Buster Rhymes. <laughs> Suki, you like Buster Rhymes? Who doesn't like Buster? I don't... As an actor, I might need some convincing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're not going to get any convincing from Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> I might need a little bit of convincing. But, you know, it's 
I like that. I don't think it should be all all or nothing either way. You know, if yeah, if if remission were to become a feature and get twelve sequels, I wouldn't want them all to you know have some profound message. You know, mm-hmm. I did. Maybe there's a profound message here, depending on who's viewing the film. But it, it, once you have a franchise that's you know going installment after installment after installment, and people are expecting it to a degree, I think that you owe that audience a slice of cheesecake every now and again, you know, like what, what's, what's the harm there? No, I, I can totally dig that. Can totally dig that. Sometimes you just need a cheap thrill. And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of those Halloween films that came out after uh, part five became cheap thrill film. And I'm totally okay with that. Halloween H2O was what it was 20 years later. We needed that. And I think Jamie Lee Curtis coming back for that was equally at the time, equally powerful a lot of people talked about that and i think a lot of the hatred for some of these films didn't really come around until it became popular to to shit on online because movie criticism is a cold cold place to stick around and you know what they say ben uh uh, what is it man is the coldest place to hide that's true yep that that's exactly it that nice pull all the way back to the john carpenter uh good stuff no, I I 100% agree with that. It, I think if there's a single element to it that should be criticized, it's the fact that some of these movies, particularly when we're talking like mid-2000s sort of ballpark, um, that's sometimes I get the sense that Hollywood was just throwing franchises at the wall and they're like, all right, what's going to stick? Yeah. And that's something that is kind of painful as a fan. And I totally understand why people would get hung up on that if they're a fan of this franchise and have followed it for a long time. And it feels like the people putting money, money behind this project don't care about it five or 10% as much as they do. I can understand, but you know, I don't think that blame rests on a creative or a filmmaker, director, writer who came in with a different vision of these characters and story and took it a different direction. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Not everybody's going to like it, but that's their vision. And you need to have sort of a, a influx of ideas and an influx of creativity and, and purpose uh, in order to keep a franchise living as long as it did. Not all of them are going to be home runs. You know, sometimes you got to strike out seven times before you hit a home run. But, Is there a franchise that you would redo? Uh, as far as like a full on reboot or, yeah. or just like doing an installment of just putting the Ben Schatzel love on it. This is just like your just, baby. You Like, this is what, this is my vision. If I had, was in the driver's seat, this is what I would have done with it. Yeah. So my favorite horror franchise is Saw. That is right. by large. The first Saw movie is what pulled me to the genre yeah. because I was like, I was like, I didn't know you could do this with horror. I didn't yeah. know that it could be philosophical in this way and, and psychological in this way. And it came, you know, I saw it at the right time in my life. You know, I was kind of like coming into adulthood. And I was so young and I kind of like was able to pull at some of these ideas that Saul was offering me. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a gore fest, which is just great when you're <laughs> 16, you know. So it had all of the elements and still I go back to it and it's easily my favorite horror film, bar none. Um, and you know, the, the films past that, I think probably the same as you feel about Halloween, a lot of them get an unnecessary amount of hate put their direction because they sort of get labeled as torture porn or it's just a gore fest. And I mean, that's true to an extent, but, uh, whereas the first one sort of led with this very internal primal fear 
of you don't know what's going to happen. And there's this whole, you know, backside to this story that you're not even privy of, but you're feeling all of the consequences of. That's really fun to watch as an audience because we're so voyeuristic and we want to be in the room and we want to see all the <laughs> it's bad so things. True. Yeah. Like we want to see all of the worst things happen because that just like fuels something inside of us and, and we want to feel like a fly on the wall. Um, so that really works, but the the sequels past that, you know, kind of led with the violence, which I don't think diminishes the meaning of the films or, or anything but it's not going to be everybody's taste uh i would love to mm-hmm. take a crack at at that uh franchise is it ever going to happen uh, yes pro- probably not maybe yes, but i i do like it um i loved what they did with jigsaw as far as you know having kind of the twist at the end where it's like oh this is this guy who came back from the military and he's facing ptsd and that you know the whole thing's a prequel and we've got these juxtaposed timelines that are actually i mean i'm kind of with you on the cujo thing like if you haven't seen jigsaw at this point that's on you but you have these timelines that are anachronistic <laughs> against each other. um these timelines don't match up with each other but you're kind of being yeah. like breadcrumb the whole time that these are yeah. happening concurrently and i thought that was such a great like on premise twist for the franchise and people walked out of jigsaw and they're like that was stupid i i didn't like it because i i don't know there, there wasn't somebody from Lincoln Park in it or something. Um, and I hate that thought, though. I, I actually own every Saw film that has been made, okay? And I'm here to tell you, the very first Saw film, sure, gory, uh, gore porn if you want to call it that, it was cerebral as all get out. And most importantly, has probably a top three twist at the end of any film ever made. Okay, my number one twist of all time is Planet of the Apes, the original, uh, Charlton Heston. Um, The first time they did it, and it was, it blew everybody out of the water. Right, if you're watching it live, you know, in in theaters, you you haven't watched it on old TBS reruns or at your grandma's house. Like, this is a brand new film. (laughs) The twist at the end of Planet of the Apes is bananas, okay? You've been been caught, the, the space guys have been caught, they're kept prisoner by this this race of apes and he escapes gets to the surface only to find the fucking statue of liberty we've been on earth this whole goddamn time amazing but the twist at the end of saw when tobin bell stands up peels off the the thing um damn it it was an audible gasp in the theaters that i'll i will never forget I'll never forget the reaction from that specific movie theater. And that was the first of of many. And sure, quality can fall off a little bit after X number of sequels. But Saw is like if Agatha Christie did LSD and Hercule Poirot died in all the film. That's that's what Saw is. It's that well written. It is. And maybe to tie this back to remission just, just a tiny bit. But the so that's what I pulled from. When I'm looking at story structure, especially in horror, and, you know, how do I think I can pull this together? I've run into a dead end with a script. I'm like, okay, what did they do at Saw? Mm-hmm. And, like, can I steal that somehow? Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, riff off of it, or, you know, will it point me in a different direction? The interpretation. Of, sorry, what's that? An interpretation. Sorry. An interpretation, sure. Um, you know, a lot of artists are, like, very shameless with stealing, and they're like, hey, stealing is part of art. Uh, I, yeah. I agree with that in part. Like, if you're stealing technique, 
if you're stealing, you know, oh, this this was like a camera trick, or this was a, uh, you know, they did this in Wizard of Oz, and we can do this here in this crazy horror movie. You know, that that's one thing. If you're stealing characters and ideas and storylines, it's a little little too shameless. But if you're stealing, you know, the the art form, the tech, the technical side of it, uh, you know, I think that's a beautiful form of of theft. And you know, Quentin Tarantino talks about this at length because. That's, that's pretty much all of his films is is pulling from these these Hollywood silver screen moments. But uh, the the twist at the end of Saw it it's like the double hit because you find that this dead guy has been alive the whole time. He's the mastermind behind the plot. But not only that, the action that happened in the first three seconds of Saw is ultimately what dooms the main character at the end, and, and that's his last vision. Before, you know, I guess he dies, like, b- before the end of him, um, is he, he sunk the key down the bathtub. And I believe Adam is his name. But, like, that's the end. Like, he was he was doomed from three seconds into the movie, and he never even knew it. There's not a happy ending to be found in the Saw franchise. And that's something that I think a lot of people couldn't wrap their heads around. Because at the end of the day, you kind of want the good guys to, to prevail. But... This offers none of that. And when you get down the line to, uh, what is his name? Uh, Costas um, Mandalore. Costas Mandalore. Um, yeah. There was the detective that was following him around. And, like, you're on this guy's side. You're, like, you're in, as invested as this detective. And, you know, he's got the, the, the throat issue going on because he got almost died in the last one. And you think at the moment that he's got him. And they fall, or they're down in the... Um, and, you know, with the walls coming in and Custis Mandalore is, you know, he's in that box and he's like, I know who you are. And it's like, you're not Jigsaw. I think he was saying you're not Jigsaw. That I might be running that with a different film. But um, like when, when the, the walls crush him, it's like, you know what? There's nobody that's safe in this film. There's mm-hmm. absolutely nobody who's safe. And that's what I love about it. And that's why I watch yeah. it probably once every <laughs> two or three months. Yeah, no, it's I likewise. It's, it's one that I go back to often. It's a weirdly comforting film for me, which I might say be all that. That's, that's crazy. But it's I mean, there's just something to it, like knowing when all of the and you're like, oh, this is how that's going to tie in, in in 30 minutes. And this guy's yeah, he's going to die. Um, I don't know. This is just like something very weirdly cathartic about that. But I equate Saw to Breaking Bad uh, somewhat frequently. And one, because I believe at the epicenter of both of those stories is everything around uh, like cancer as a fear, especially around that that point in time. These Saw came out in 2004, Breaking Bad came out in 2008. So these are very closely related in, in terms of time, um, particularly that when, close. Yeah. And I, I mean, you consider the fact that Vince Gilligan was probably working on Breaking Bad for at least a good couple of years before it ever premiered. Mm-hmm. So... I think, to me, my tinfoil hat theory is I think that there's probably a single threat that you could pull from Saw to Breaking Bad. Um, because, you know, Walter White is is the villain of the story. Jigsaw is at least positioned as the villain of the story. I guess the same could be said as Walter White. But we see both of them defy these great odds. Even though we, we're supposed to hate them, we watch the stories and like, I'm supposed to hate you. I know you're evil and you're doing all of the worst things, but you're just defying these astronomical odds. And now I'm rooting for you, even though you're the bad guy, because it, it's such an underdog story. And, you know, if this is like such a common uh, under, like, 
such a common experience now, even still, but particularly at the time of people facing these insurmountable odds because of be it medical debt, be it just the, the you know, actual ailment that they're um, being afflicted with. And you want these people to win and you understand why they will, you know, go to the world's end in order in order to achieve it. That's heavy. That is so fucking heavy. I never thought anything about Breaking Bad and Saw. At and all. Now, and now capacity. I'm going to be thinking about it all the time. Now I'm stuck. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it gives you an excuse to rewatch both, which are both incredibly depressing stories to watch. So, like, you know, definitely make sure that you're on your meds or, you know, you at least, like, have some ice cream to sit with. Uh, but ice cream no, is my meds. Yeah, no, it's likewise. <laughs> I like M. Night. M. Night is my favorite guy. I don't even know if he's horror, really. But I like whatever he does whenever he does it. M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, you know, I would squarely put him in the horror genre. So this is something that is sort of near and dear to my heart, is I think that there is a lot of gatekeeping around the the horror genre at Mm -hmm. large. And I see horror as a very open-ended genre. The same, really the same as comedy. Like, I would put those as two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, And with comedy you see it the same a little bit where people are like, Oh, that wasn't funny. I wouldn't consider it a comedy. But at the end of the day, we all know that a comedy doesn't have to be funny, right? Like you can, you can go watch a Shakespearean comedy. I don't think there's a single funny line in a single Shakespearean comedy, but irony is probably the greatest form of comedy. Right. But it's the irony and it's just like Mm -hmm. the, all of the miscommunication. And, you know, I'm sure it was a lot funnier at the time, probably. That's what people say, at least. But it, you know, you would nobody would contest that. Nobody would contest that a Shakespearean comedy is, in fact, a comedy, regardless of whether or not they were laughing throughout it. But when it comes to horror, it seems like the end-all, be-all, you know, requirement to be a horror is, is this scary? And that's not particularly how I look at it. Like, I think that fear should play a role in it. But I don't think that that fear has to manifest in a way that's scary to the viewer. And it doesn't have to, you know, have a jump scare or it doesn't have to have a monster. I mean, those are things that I like to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're tropes within the genre. But in my opinion, if you're building a story around any sort of societal fear, political fear, personal fear, human fear, Mm -hmm. then it's a horror. If, if you're using fear as a vehicle to tell your story, then it is horror. And M. Night Shyamalan is somebody who does that. Uh, and I would call him kind of like a slash director. Like, it's always like a horror slash yeah. comedy or a horror slash mystery or, you know, yeah. something like that. But it, it seems like horror is always sort of in the mix for him, um, with the exception of, like, maybe his franchise films. No, I agree with everything you just said. And as a matter of fact, I'm probably going to clip it because that probably encapsulated oh. my thought better yeah. than I could ever <laughs> better than I ever I could you know put into my own words I mean that that's very well said and M. Night Shyamalan Suki is probably um I'm gonna give him top 10 billing in in my top 10 list um I'm Jeez. a big fan of Shyamalan um, thanks Billy well, I'm excited well hey I'm glad I mean the, the the happening commonly gets shit on and it's one of my favorite of his film mm-hmm. yeah um, no I mean that and that, I I thought that was such a brilliant concept at the center of it. And I don't know if it just came out at a time where people didn't want to have the conversation that he was having or, or what it was. I mean, 
who knows? Maybe there was production trouble we don't know about, or maybe there's production trouble that I don't know about. Um, but it seemed like there was a, a real solid idea at the center of that. And when that pulls through the film, it's like, wow, that this is this is pretty good. Yeah, it's the so. internet era, man. That that's that's what it boils down to. The, you get that group think, and you get enough people saying one thing, and you know you're going to hear the the naysayers a whole lot more than you're going to you know, hear anybody cheering anything on. You just look at the social media groups. When you go on, it's like, well, this wasn't a horror. That's why I didn't like it. Oh, this is the worst thing I ever saw. There's never a gray area on anything. And the, the most recent one I can think of is the black phone. I thought the black phone was very good. I thought it was very well done. I liked the acting. I liked the story. But because there wasn't a body count, because there wasn't enough of a, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but maybe the ending could have you know, gone a different direction. The people were saying it's not even a horror. Oh, it was the worst thing I ever saw. But come on, man. That was a, a pretty good story. And even if you didn't like it, it's not the worst thing you've ever seen. If uh, if you ever watched Blood Rage in the 80s, then you can't say the black phone was the worst thing you've ever seen. If you sat through Blood Rage or Intruder, those ter- those films are terrible, but we love them. And, and the fact is, hor- bad horror films are better than bad films of any other genre. Yeah, no, Black Phone's an interesting poll because uh, the guy who wrote that did Sinister. And Sinister is often considered one of the scariest films. People people will say it's one of the scariest films of all time. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but I would say it's pretty scary. Um, I don't know if you can necessarily say there's a body count. It's almost like there is, but there's not because most of the body count for... I don't know, 85 minutes of the movie is all of these like found footage clips that had already happened. So it's not really characters that we know that, that are added to the body count. Um, So, I mean, it's almost like the body count loophole in that way, but to, to then take that criticism against black phone, I don't know. In my mind, the the movie's about what it's about. I feel like I say this so much to, to people that have complaints, but it's like the movie's about what the movie's about. It's not about whatever you wanted it to be about. It's about what the person who made it wanted it to be about. Um, and, you know, that's just a, another trope. You know, I, I would say to horror, like a body count is a trope to horror, but there's some terrifying films where not a single person dies at any point in the film. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't think that that like necessitates mm-hmm. its place in the genre by any means. Well, some opinions that I see are when maybe a specific character dies or doesn't die, then that makes the movie worse. Well, no, it makes the situation that happened in the movie worse. Like maybe you wanted somebody to, to, to meet their maker. Maybe you wanted somebody to survive. And a film that I'm specifically thinking of is Fender Bender with Bill Sage. He was in one of those uh, wrong turn films uh, pretty recently. But Bill Sage was in this film, Fender Bender, where it's basically a stalking kind of situation going on. He's, you know, ramming these young girls' cars. Not even young girls, just, you know, women um, who are isolated. He's kind of hitting them in the, in the their, their bumper. They exchange insurance information. That's where he tracks them down, right? And at the end of this film, the, the heroine dies. You think he's dead? He comes back and he gets her. I specifically remember like one of my friends telling me that I thought the movie was great until the very end when he killed the girl. So, well, that doesn't make the movie bad. You, you just <laughs> didn't like that she didn't live. And then it came out that like really this specific person only likes films when you know the, the woman 
lives and saves the day. So it's like, okay, well that's your that's your situation because you got a whole genre full of final girls, and when they flip the script on you, you don't like it. Well, that's you know that's your that's your thing. Didn't like Madman for the same reason. I love Madman, but this doesn't degrade any quality of the film. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my pet peeves when it comes to gatekeeping. Like Because a thing happened in the film that you didn't like, you automatically make it lose a star. Well, no, you were engaged the whole time. That means it did its job. And mm-hmm. I think people should start looking at film in that way. Did it keep my interest? And did it make me feel some kind of way? And well, I, I think the best are making us do that. And Black Phone does make us feel some kind of way. Yeah, exactly. And I think... You know, just listening to you say that, that that feels like such a surface level analysis of that film of, hey, this thing happened in the film and I didn't like it. So therefore, I don't like the film because, you know, like I said, with my particular film, Remission, it was all based on the final image. Like everything I was doing prior to that moment was to build to that moment. And, you know, who's to say that that's not the exact same situation with Fender Bender, where the whole story was to build to this kill. Mm-hmm. And so if you're saying you don't like that kill, but you like the entire build up to that, then sure, that that's your personal preference. That's, you know, you're that's fine. No, nobody's going to contest that. But that's such a heavy moment of the film that that it is the film, you know, that you can't like pull that out and be like, well, the rest of it was great because the rest of it exists for that moment. And I don't necessarily know that that's true, but that's often the way it goes. It's pretty damn close, though, Ben, because uh, the opening moments, like the the cold open, and like who does cold opens more than the horror genre? I don't think any other genre of film does a cold open quite as much as uh, the horror genre does. But in the cold open of this film, uh, Lady gets home. You, they kind of plant some seeds in this opening scene where the lady comes home. You see her insurance or some inf- insurance information written down with a name scribbled out and then another name written below it and then a last name. Okay, this is important later on. Um, somebody comes into the into the home, kills her, and then we're off to modern day story, right? And then so the the book ends to this film are guy kills girl, guy kills girl. So yeah, the whole film is a build up to that moment. How they got there is, you know, just, you know, the storytelling in itself. But man, I thought it was a really good film. And hearing that the only reason that they didn't like it was because the girl dies. That that kind of tells me that maybe, yeah, while it's your opinion, learning how to form your opinions is a skill in itself. And I think that you can't just sit on, hey, that's my opinion and be happy with your final, you know, your final thought. So that's to me is... Just faulty thinking. Mm-hmm. So, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, 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 no! I'd love to hear it. In remission, the in the beginning with the penguins, that's that's a cold open, right? For people who are just hearing the word cold open, like over here, guys, y'all are talking like I've been here forever. So, cold open, that would be the penguins, right? Is that so? I don't yeah. know if remission necessarily has a cold open. Okay. In, in the I didn't way take that it I'll... as one, Ben. Okay. I didn't take it as one. I I would say no. I, so uh, when I'm trying to like think of a, a great cold open film. And, I got like, one for you. I got one for yeah, you. Yeah, go ahead. Suki, Friday the 13th part two. Do you know it? No. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, what's your favorite scary movie? Ah, Scream. Let's talk about Scream. The cold open. The girls get in the, uh, the phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You, go right, you go right you go into right the story. Into okay. And okay. Like, there's no explanation. It's just yeah. like a, a small mini movie in itself. The, the, okay. uh, 
a Get Out does it very well. I, yeah. I mean, a lot of the best horror directors have the best cold open. So, so one of my favorite horror directors is David F. Sandberg, and I think he does the best cold opens in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because he was a, a short film director for so long. He did the Lights Out short film. Lights Out blew everybody on the planet out of the water. Like, here's this no-name from Sweden who just made this three-minute film, zero dollars and zero cents. His wife's the only performer in it. They've got, like, a little bit of a scare at the end, and it's just, like, super tight, compact, hits you where when you don't expect it. And, you know, it, this was at a point in time in the internet where, it, you know, something would just come out and, like, the whole internet would be talking about it. So it was a little bit of right time, right place. But uh, he, you look at any of his films now, and the opening scene or two before the title card is so tightly crafted. Like the lights out feature is them showing the monster. And it's this whole story that that's built up and it basically plays like a short film. And then after the title card, they like completely shift perspectives. Right. And it's, and it's like this girl in, in the house and it's like way different. Uh, and it ties back later. And I, you know, horror does that really effectively where they're like, Hey, here's the monster in a different context. And then we're going to shift to a whole different story. And then you're going to see how it, uh, and then they do the same thing and get out where it's like, Hey, here's this act of violent racism. And then we're going to go to, uh, Daniel Kaluuya having sex with childish Gambino music in the background. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Wait a minute. Yeah, I, was that's not okay. what I was watching. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. Thank but you. then you're on the hook. Then everybody's like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm on, I'm on I'm, board with this. This yeah. is good. Yeah. You know what to be afraid of. You, you know what they can do. Mm-hmm. And now let's get back to modern day, fill us in with, you know, the, the current story and then build up to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the, the climax of the film. But, um, so moving on though, Ben, um, what do you have coming up? Like, what, what do you have any upcoming projects? Yeah. You know, I, uh, that, that that's a that's a tough question honestly uh the quick answer is i was in a feature that you're very familiar with it's called curse of the Were deer uh i have a role in that that i was very excited to play um it, it relates to one of our very recent conversations but i won't give it away too much i was able to knock something off my acting especially my horror acting bucket list with that one so it, it's a great film it has some of the greatest people on the planet involved with it in my opinion um <laughs> Keep an eye out for it. I believe it's releasing next year. Don't quote me on that. Instead, just look up Curse of the Were Deer on Google. Find its IMDb. Uh, I believe you can find it on socials. Follow along. You'll you'll find all the information that way. Um, so that's what's really next up for me. As far as the producing side of things, I am just deeply entrenched in finding that next project right now. So there's a couple strong candidates in my, in my brain. I've like started running with a few different ideas. Um, I want to start playing with some different mediums is I think what I've decided. So I don't know if that's going to be virtual reality. I don't know if that's going to be, you know, maybe more like vertical, uh, like something optimized specifically for like viewing on your phone. Um, like more vertical entertainment. I, I don't know what it's going to be quite yet, but I want to start experimenting with some other mediums, maybe theater. We'll see. So yeah, nothing else to plug at the moment, but definitely keep an eye out for curse of the Were deer. Um, like I said, it's all, it's got all the best people on the planet for it. It's a lot of violent, sexy fun. So who doesn't love that? <laughs> all of us, all of us love it. Yeah. So yeah. when uh curse of the Were deer does get closer to releasing, I've got, 
you know, the director Ben on on tap, Ben Johnson, got him on tap. Uh, some of the actors have agreed uh, tentatively to come on, pending schedules. Um, I believe this weekend they've got some kind of film festival going on. Um, what is that festival where they spend oh. the night trying to make a film? Oh, they're doing the, that's right, they're doing the 40A. They're doing the, I forgot that they were doing that. Uh, yes, I believe they're doing the Nashville 48-hour film festival. Yes, that's exactly uh, what it is. I saw Jasmine Hanks. Uh, she came in. She's coming down, or she has already arrived. Um, saw the the Instagram story where she's strutting through the Nashville International Airport. Um, so she's down. I'm not sure who else is down. A lot of the guys were already local. And it's funny because we know each other through um, a, just a bit of tiny coverage I did for curse of the were deer i got in touch with ben johnson who was an old classmate of mine an old high school classmate as a matter of fact his uh his mom was my geometry teacher and ben and i didn't actually know each other that well in high school we it's such a small town okay to put in perspective at the time there were probably two thousand people or fewer in that town and that's i mean it's microscopic okay uh one high school one middle school one elementary school and that's it uh, maybe two grocery stores, but wow. Ben's, yeah, it was, again, I, I knew Ben as I, I could look at him and say, Hey, that's Ben Johnson. He might look at me and say, Hey, that's Billy Graves. Um, because you know, he was in certain groups. I was in certain groups, but we, we never crossed paths. But once I heard that some mutual friends were trying to put this together, they reached out to a friend of mine about filming on his, um, on his farm or at least parts of it on his farm. And so I was like, man, I really need to get behind this and maybe help out as much as I can. So I reached out to Ben. I said, hey, look, man, I know you got this coming up. I've got this podcast project coming up, kind of reformatting the show. Would you like to come on? He said, hell yeah, I would. And in the meantime, here's some information. So I said, well, you know what? Since I can't have you on really soon, let me just do this write up and see what we can do. And to this day, it's you know the most successful, the most read piece of uh, piece of work that I have on SlasherSports.com. And I'm really thankful for the the opportunity to talk to Ben about the film. But even more than that, I've met a lot of good people, and it's kind of turned into I, I jokingly say the six degrees of separation because every piece of work that I talk to or talk about with anyone involved always turns in, well, Hey, what about you should talk to this guy. I worked with him on this or like, just like you did with, uh, with Patrick Ray. And I, I need to talk to Dan Daly is what I need to do because. Oh, you do. Yeah. Well, I can, I can get that arranged for you, <laughs> man. You are, I, you're really nice, Ben. I wouldn't ah. trade you for anything. <laughs> no, but this has been really great. <laughs> It's been really great talking to you. I mean, just learning. I mean, then taking the time to explain certain things to me because I'm on the outside of the horror genre. So I, I really do appreciate you you doing that for us. No, I mean, it's look, here's here's what I'd say to that, Sookie, is that I don't think there's a better time to try to be like get into the horror genre than right now. Mm-hmm. So it's very overwhelming as a genre because people that love horror aren't diehards about it. And and so it feels like an overwhelming genre to try to get into and, and learn about. Um, and, you know, some people don't like to be scared. But, it, it, you know, just find something that, that piques your curiosity. You, you know, be it a horror comedy even. Be it, you know, a sort of just like a, a mystery horror. Whatever the case may be. 
I think that there's not a better time to to get into the horror genre. Billy might push back on that on that point, but I think there's some really interesting stuff coming out now. Um, and to get back to everything that you're talking about there, Billy, like especially on the independent level, I think that's where it's happening. You know, the uh, the big like Hollywood tentpole movies don't seem to quite have the level of like creativity that that that's coming out of this like independent scene and that's been true for a long time but i think it's kind of hitting this um i don't know tipping point so to say i think in the future and this is just me you know talking out of my ass but with 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 the seemingly increasing i guess occasions that we see big films and i'm talking about like halloween ends uh it's already slated to hit along with theaters it's going to peacock tv and Mm -hmm. some people aren't too happy with that. I don't have any data to back this up, but it feels like maybe the movie theater business could use a shot in the arm because a lot of these films are going straight to streaming mm-hmm. or just completely bypassing theaters. And I think that might be an opportunity for maybe local uh, films to get into their local theater. I, mean, I, I could totally see Curse of the Weirdeer going to, you know, Regal Cinemas there in uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee. If like a two-night open? Out. Like a two-night open, something like that, where it's something like showing like for that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. why not? Absolutely. I mean, I know and, contractual and things happen. have to happen, but it's a thought. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that that does happen, and that's how it used to be. Uh, to you, anybody who's listening to this, I would recommend reading the book, Everything I Learned About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. It's a book written by James Gunn and Lloyd Kaufman, who founded Trauma. And that's what they were doing. They were creating these films and then they were going to theaters and saying, hey, would you play this film? Mm-hmm. And that it was a very grassroots effort. And then all of a sudden, you know, movie theaters only wanted to play bigger tentpole films and franchise films because there was kind of like that built in audience. And they they thought that they would be able to, you know, effectively get their money back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a safer investment. But now, like like you're talking about with streaming, I haven't seen a Marvel movie in theaters in a uh, in a while, and it's because I know I'm going to watch it on streaming, and it's you know going to be something I put on while I'm either doing work on my laptop or doing something different. Um, but to see an indie film in theaters, you know, first of all, I'm the type of person that is appealed to that. But it's mm-hmm. like this might be your best opportunity to see it before it just kind of gets lost somewhere. It might never get a streaming deal. You you don't know. Well, you can go see this and support it in theaters and maybe help make the next one happen. Yeah. There, there's, there's something to, to be said there. there. There's something that can happen. I don't know how we make it happen, but I do like the thought though. It almost feels like a door to door salesman kind of a situation. And, and I like that. I mean, I, I come from, you know, the, the sales industry. I used to work in sales and it's something that kind of goes into my mentality when I do anything. I mean, I'm very much in, uh, you know, data analytics now. The, probably the furthest thing from sales, but still, I mean, it's something that's ingrained in my brain. And I would think, man, if I made a film, one of the first things I would do is go from theater to theater and try to sell this film onto just like one screen on one weekend. Cause I know you got the screens because you're not showing films like prey. Uh, you, you weren't showing films like the Irishman. Like these are all films that are huge and they're on, you know, they're on only streaming. Give me a screen for a weekend and we'll see what we can do. Right. Well, and it's uh, Prey is a great example. Halloween Ends is a great example. But it, now it almost feels like streaming services are looking to horror to try to like save themselves in a way. You know, it, I, 
streaming is kind of struggling to to hold on it seems like especially with everything going on with hbo max right now like they are dropping yeah. films left and right they are losing mm-hmm. losing so much of the content that they had already had contracted and then you know probably losing that level of credibility within the filmmakers um so you know hulu and peacock they're like okay how do we keep people engaged and it's going to be our big ticket horror movies so I, it seems like there's a shifting in direction for sure. And I don't know where it's going to go, but I think you're right, Billy. I think it's it's probably going to lean more towards very unique, creative, against the grain ideas mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, don't necessarily appeal to everybody. But the people they do appeal to will absolutely go see that in the theater and support it and buy the physical release and watch it on streaming mm-hmm. and all of the above. So we have we have theaters that show obscure movies, but they're usually from like France or something like that. It's not really focused on horror; it's more art. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, sometimes places like that will do like a Halloween showcase, like in October or something. But yeah, I mean, those art house theaters still are a little hit hit and miss when it comes to trying to find horror there. Well, somebody telling me I'm right about something sounds like a good spot to put a bow on this one. Ben, real quick, could you uh, let everybody know where they can find you on your social medias? Oh, goodness. I should have had this prepped. Uh, So, first of all, you can follow uh, my film studio, Stack Deck Studios, on YouTube. That's where you can find Remission. Uh, I believe that's the same across socials, but we don't really post anywhere except for YouTube. Uh, And then personally, you can find me on Instagram. It's uh, Schatzel underscore Ben. That's S-C-H-A-T-Z-E-L underscore Ben. Um, I believe my Twitter is real Ben Schatzel. And then that's really all I'm on. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. And we're going to have those links in the bio to this episode. So uh, dig in, find Ben, support the support Stack Deck Studios doing good work. Suki, got any final thoughts before we ride out of here? remember what a cold open is and thank you Ben so much for spending time with us oh thank you no thank you it's been a blast I do want to remind everybody to give us a visit at slashersports.com on Twitter and TikTok at slashersports and on Instagram at slashersportsmedia we got everything in sports and entertainment from baseball to horror flicks now go forth and may you drink the blood of your enemies from the skulls of their children